Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Putting It Together. Coming at you this week from my temporary studio here in Galway, or just outside Galway um, in Octorard, which is, well, in Ireland, as you know. And I've come over here for a couple of days to relax, uh, meet up with some friends. And uh, yes, I'm finally having a wee break from work. Um, if you don't count the podcast, which I kind of don't. So yes, welcome and thank you for joining me and thanks for sticking with it. Uh, I'm delighted to bring you this week's episode. It features my guest, Joe Clifford, the playwright who's currently got a run of her well-known and highly, uh, let me say, highly protested as well play, uh, The Gospel According to Jesus, Queen of Heaven, which is on at the Traverse right now. uh, And it's still running until I think the 22nd. I'll confirm that with you right at the end of the show anyway. So yes, uh, Joe took the time out to talk to me at the weekend there, just after I had seen the show, which was great, gave, gave us a chance to talk about the content of the show quite specifically, but also her journey as, as, a, as a writer and as a human being and, and a wee bit about her experience as a trans woman and, and that whole that whole journey, which was not only fascinating, but also I found very moving. Um, so I hope that you get something out of it and um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be able to bring it to you. So I've got loads of episodes in the can for you, um, an exciting run actually, and as you probably know I'm taking a wee holiday, well now I'm on holiday but I'm going away for a few weeks and I won't be bringing any podcast stuff with me so uh, there, there's three episodes I'm going to have to get lined up uh, in advance of that and also it means that right now I've got probably about six, the next six weeks episodes in the can and they're, they're all really exciting and a diverse range of guests um, from across the, the Scottish arts scene. And yeah, it's an exciting time for the podcast. I've got a Christmas special. Well, it's more of a New Year special actually coming to you, um, which I'm going to make in a couple of days time. And yeah, um, I hope that I hope that you get something from it. And a um, big thank you to those people who have subscribed and shared and special thank you to those people who have been on the Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash putting it together and pledge to support the podcast financially. It costs just a few pounds every month um, and it's going to help to keep the podcast going and uh, help me to dedicate as much time as I need to to the project. So thank you for those people who've already done that. And if you haven't and you can afford to and you'd like to support the podcast, then that's a great way to do it. I'd really appreciate it. If you can't afford it, then that's grand too because the podcast remains free for you. So listen to it, enjoy it, whatever works for you. If you can't afford it, there's a chance that you might be sticking a few quid in for someone else who can't so think of it that way uh, yeah it's much appreciated the people have already done it and um i hope that that continues to grow as the archive does we're up to oh 50 55 56 episodes now they're all free they're all available in the archive wherever you get your podcasts uh, apple podcasts and all the google apps and all that stuff so check it out if you haven't heard the other ones um yeah go ahead and they keep they keep coming thick and fast. I was talking to um, a radio station today about possibly putting the shows on the radio at some time. I'm gonna that's is about as much detail as I'm gonna go into with that. But suffice it to say, there's uh, there's wee rumbles going on for the podcast, and it's growing, and that's exciting. And that's because you listen, because uh, I could talk into a void. I mean, I've been doing that for years, but because people actually download the episodes and have a wee listen, you know. That's why it keeps growing. So thank you very much for people who've been hanging around. And if you've just joined me, great. Welcome. The archive's there. Dip back into it. But each episode stands alone. And I hope that you just pick and choose and enjoy, you know, whatever suits you. Uh, 
So thank you for that. So my guest today, as I've said, is Joe Clifford, and I have the interview here for you, and I'm looking forward to hearing your feedback on it. So if you'd like to let me know what you think, or if you've other ideas about the podcast, if you've got questions, if you've got wee comments to make, whatever they are, uh, you can get me on Twitter at PittCCPod. You can email me, Brian, at PuttingItTogetherCast.com. And most importantly, you can go to Patreon.com forward slash PuttingItTogether, where you can support the podcast. You can leave comments there, and you can also leave a wee donation to keep the podcast going. Both are appreciated. So, here we go. It's me and Joe Clifford, and we are Putting It Together. So that's the water of Leith we're looking at, is it? That is the water of Leith, yes. Probably the most important part of Edinburgh. Or it's it the end. Or it used to be in the way, because that's the way everything came in that made Edinburgh function as a city, because uh, sea transport worked better than road transport. Yeah, of course. And of course, the, the pub just um, just around the corner here, Chuchter's Landing, that's called because that's where the boat from Aberdeen oh, right. used to dock. Yeah. Chuchter's, that's where yeah, they come in. That's where they came in. And um, so you you would have ships coming from everywhere in the world, mm-hmm. docking outside outside this window, and because using because this was uh, this was a warehouse in the old days, right? Okay. Um, so I mean, this is a, this is historically it's a it's a really it's a really important and exciting place to live. I'm very happy to be here. Have you always lived in Leith? No, no. I used to live in the uh, centre of town, just off the Royal Mile. Right. We had a we had a house that was um, in a place that used to be a whiskey no a brewery it was a brewery right, that's yeah. what it was and um, oh that was amazing too that was a lovely house uh, very close to the Parliament right right, right. Um, and before that we lived out in uh, Rosslyn out in the um, in a cottage that was very close to Rosslyn Chapel that was mm. another beautiful spot and before that. <laughs> We lived on the uh, shore in near Lower Largo in Fife. You've done well. These and are nice we, spots. Uh, they are nice spots. Yeah. And uh, we had a commune there. A commune? <laughs> yeah. Did you really? Yeah. Tell me a bit about that. Well, this was in the... Oh, wow. This must have been in the... Hmm, uh, let me just try to think. This would, this would have been in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And um, revolution was very much in the air sure, in those yeah. days. And... We believed that the uh, personal was political, and mm-hmm. that it was that capitalism was on its last legs, and it was important in order to create alternatives to live in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, you know, we tried to grow our own food. We tried to be as self-sufficient as we could. We shared as much of as much as we could of our own belongings. Um, we used to pool our resources. And we just tried to take care of each other. Um, and it was particularly important for us at the time to try to find an alternative to the nuclear family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, because me and my partner, we both suffered very much as children from our families. And we wanted to try to try to find an important way to her, a different way to live. It seemed very mm-hmm. important to us um, at the time. And was it successful? Do you think you found well, something? Well, I, I, you know, it was five often very difficult years. Five years. Uh, but it was, you know, lovely, lovely, interesting people. Mm-hmm. Um, and ironically enough, what split it up was the fact that uh, my partner got pregnant. 
mm-hmm. and the other members really didn't want to get involved in childcare at that stage in their lives. And so they went and left us. Wow, because <laughs> it would have been a village raising the child kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, we, you know, we, we wanted we wanted childcare to be a um, you know a collective enterprise. Mm-hmm. I mean, childcare is incredibly important. It's incredibly difficult, um, and we were a bit sad to find ourselves ending up as a nuclear family. But on the other <laughs> hand, we really tried our best to share childcare, mm-hmm. so that um, I mean, we literally split the week in half and for one half of the week I was looking after the kids and for the other half of the week my partner was and so we were both mother and father to our children and um, do you mean when you were still together you were you were still a, a couple but you one worked and one yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no we I mean we stayed me and my partner we stayed together for for 33 years and yeah. it was um the only thing that separated us was that she died of a brain tumor Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, That's and that sad. was, um, and it was at that point, actually, after she died, that I really simply could not continue living as a man. And right. that's when I began living as a woman. Right, I see. And how much, I mean, before she died, how much of that um, inner turmoil, let's say, was she aware of? Well, she was the um, she was the first person I came out to, and that was very very soon after we met i mean it was really important i couldn't i couldn't conceal something like that from her mm-hmm. and then uh, it was very difficult knowing when to when to tell the children because i mean in those days gosh society was very very hostile yeah and i was um, i was always picking up the kids from school and bringing them back with their friends mm-hmm. and i thought that if it got out that I was trans, there was every possibility that my girls would be bullied. Mm, awful, that, yeah. that, that the parents um, of their friends would say, no, we don't want this person picking up our children from school. And life would become very, very difficult for, for all of us. And I didn't want my children to suffer. So actually, I didn't tell them until they were at um, secondary school and things were mm-hmm. things were, were, were a bit better. But... Um, Yes, yeah, so we and then we all we all went through it together. Uh, one of the awful things about being trans in a transphobic society is that it's not just you who suffer from transphobia, but it's everybody you love. They get involved in yeah, of course, in, in, yeah. in it as well. So it was a very very difficult time, and I I actually didn't want to. I really didn't want to live as a woman. I, what I wanted to do was keep living as a man, mm-hmm. uh, but in the knowledge that there is a woman inside every man, mm-hmm. and but that one of the things that happens to boys and men in our society is that we're brought up to be ashamed mm. of our feminine side um, and to repress it and to try and kind of pretend it isn't there and act tough and, and, and mm. strong. And this this causes men in general huge, huge suffering. And I and I think it's it's one of the causes of the massive rates of suicide among young men. Terrifying rates. Terrifying rates. Mm-hmm. But, uh, because, you know, we're, we're told we have to be strong. Yeah. And I wanted, as a man, to somehow be 
exemplifying, to be expressing yeah. someone who wasn't afraid of their of their femininity. That was my idea. And I didn't really believe it was possible <laughs> right. to live as a woman. I didn't think I could do it. Um, but I was, after Susie died, I just, I just could not go on living as a man. It was impossible for me. It was unbearable. Um, and in fact, I'm just wondering whether to tell you this. Everyone will think I'm, I'm probably a bit crazy, but um, we knew. Obviously, we'd been told that she had a brain tumor, that there was nothing to be done, mm. that she was going to die. And I can remember soon after that happened, we couldn't sleep together anymore, which was horrible. It was just horrible because she was restless and suffering. And yeah. uh, and I remember one night I was I was lying in on a mattress in the room next door feeling utterly wretched and I heard a voice in my head and the voice said the woman inside you is wholly good which absolutely freaked me out because I'd always felt that that woman inside me was a you know a massive misfortune it was a, a, a it caused me so much suffering mm. so much distress but the voice said, the woman inside you is wholly good. And then went on to say, and she will help you through this time of suffering while you're with Susie and while she's dying. And then she will help you live a new life once she's gone. Mm. And in fact, that's what happened. It becomes your greatest asset. Yeah, at that exa time. well, exactly. Wow. And so, and so, I mean, and you can see that reflected in the play, Jesus, Queen of Heaven, because sure. I say, you know, we all have a light inside us, and sometimes it's the very thing we've been taught to be most ashamed of. Hmm. Um, and <laughs> yeah, that comes really from that experience. And uh, and for that part of the play, I suppose the the great thing about it is that for me that resonated in a different place uh, about. Right, I'm not a trans person, but when you said that, I have this sense, it, it took me back to all sorts of things about how I was uh, brought up, my experience at school, yeah. you know, feeling, not feeling part of yeah. certain things, all that stuff, it spoke about yeah. all that to yeah. me. Yeah. So I, yeah. that's that's one of the other reasons I loved it, because I thought, well, this is not about one thing. No. It's about being human. That's right. You know? And that's, um, well, that's something else I've discovered, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, when I was young, I remember so vividly being, oh, God, 13, 14, and suffering. Well, you know how much you can suffer when you're that age. Yeah. You'll remember that too, I'm mm -hmm. sure. But I remember feeling that there was no one in the whole world as bad, as sick, mm. as horrible as I was. Um, and, that I f and I was completely alone. And of course, as the years pass, I discovered that no, <laughs> I'm not alone. Mm. And now, every time I, almost every man I speak to, every woman I speak to, I discover has had feelings of the same kind. You know, you were talking about your experience just then, listening to those lines. It's mm -hmm. very, very moving. It's wonderful you felt that. But everybody... Almost everybody that I speak to feels unhappy about 
being a man. They feel that being a man has restricted them in some ways mm. or made them become somebody that maybe they really weren't. And because women suffer terribly from being women because they're discriminated against. Um, I remember talking to, to some professional women and they said, oh, we've just retired and now we feel we can become ourselves. Because when we were trying to succeed in a male world, yep. we felt we had to become somebody we were not in order to succeed. And because actually you can see that often in many, uh, in many women who are in prominent mm -hmm. positions in public life. I mean, I've just, you know, sometimes I look at Theresa May, that poor, poor suffering person. Mm. Um, and I think, yeah, that this is part of her trouble. She can't be herself in this situation mm, mm -hmm. and and this is a so this is in many ways a universal situation that i'm talking about uh, yeah uh, i totally feel that and the the journey that i've taken which is a journey of discovery of trying to find out who i really am is part of a journey that everybody has to take yeah and and i suppose you are fortunate in that you are an artist, so you have a way of processing your experience. Well, I know I'm really lucky. And yeah. um, <laughs> being trans and being a writer is an incredible, it's an incredibly powerful, yeah. uh, wonderful combination. Definitely. Um, and the other remarkable thing is that since I've started living as a woman, I've discovered I can, I can perform. Mm -hmm. I never knew I could. Uh, you never I, did as a man. I, I never did as a man. Oh, right. Never did. It was impossible. It was just out of the question. So something about coming into your into your own, being yourself completely, and has has has, um, has given me the strength to do it. And, That's tremendous. And I love it because I mean, <laughs> it's kind of remarkable, isn't it? That that show last night. I mean, that's an hour, an hour and five minutes, mm -hmm. and to hold an audience for an hour and five minutes in a solo show. In Travis One is actually quite quite a difficult thing to do. It is a big task, and um, yeah, I love it. It doesn't kind of weigh heavy on me particularly. I really enjoy doing it. You seem to, yeah. You seem to be in your element. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I love. I feel I feel completely at home on that particular stage, particularly that stage because yeah. it just offers so many fabulous possibilities. Oh, definitely. I mean, I wonder then. Did you, I kind of want to know which came first? The the being an artist or the need to process the world, can you remember? I, no, I, well, I, I can remember, and I must have been about 12 or 13. Do you know that age when you start to think, and people, people, people all around me were saying, well, I'm going to be a solicitor or I'm going to be, you know, like yeah. something or other. <laughs> and I knew I was going to be a writer. You knew it then. And it, and, and it actually made no sense to me at all. It seemed a really stupid thing to want to be. I had no confidence that I could do it. And um, the only writers I knew about in those days were, were novelists. Mm -hmm. And I remember at school, <laughs> in, um, in secondary school actually, we were studying a French writer called Camus, mm -hmm. who wrote a book called uh, L'Etranger, The Outsider, which was a set text and which I totally related to because I felt like a complete outsider yeah, yeah. Um, and a very good French teacher and he came in one day with this book of um, Carnet, notebooks 
that Camus kept, kept notebooks. And I thought, oh, okay, if I want to be a writer, then I've got to keep a notebook too. So I bought a notebook. <laughs> okay. And I started to keep one. And I've, I've kept them ever since, actually. So there's a mass of, wow. God, I must have been about 13 in those days. And so that is 55 years of notebooks that are sort of, that exist. So it's part journal, part diary, but also... It's part journal. Well, now I keep a diary, actually. um, Is that the same? Is that still in place of that? Or is that also the notebook? Well, yeah, it's a bit of both. So you'll you'll find there's sort of notebooks hanging around all over the place in this house. Right, right, right. (laughs) So there's always writing going on. Yeah, there's always writing going on. And I was... You know, I was trying to be a trying to be a novelist. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't occur to me to become a playwright until wow, till I was about thirty. Oh, that long! So, yeah. what happened in between? Were you trying to write a book this whole time, a number of books, or what? Well, well, what happened was that I um, I discovered theatre. <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> Actually, that's what happened. I must have been fourteen, I guess, and yeah, yeah. I was I was at an all all boys school. Mm-hmm. And I was asked to play the girls' parts in um, in the plays, and ah, oh, I mean, I you know, I kind of, I kind of, I've been interested in girls' clothes all for as long as I could remember, uh, but I hadn't been able to do anything about it because I had um, brothers and the work, you know, just weren't, weren't it was just nothing, mm-hmm. uh, and so I got very happy about doing that, and I, I loved, I loved acting. I mean, the minute just being in a rehearsal room, you know, that feeling of being in a rehearsal room, what a joy it is, how much fun it is. I loved it. And I became, I don't know, I wasn't shy anymore. There was a kind of power to myself. I discovered something in myself that I really, really loved. Um, And then because I also really loved um, dressing as a girl. Yeah. Uh, and I love the makeup, and I love the wig, and I love the funny feeling that you get from wearing false eyelashes. Um, all this, just I, I loved it very, very strongly. Yeah. And the really, and so in that sense, looking back on it, it was really clear that I discovered my vocation at that moment. And, and also somehow yourself. Yeah. yeah. And and my vocation was as a, was as, a, as an actor, as a performer. Yeah. That's what I discovered. But the sad thing about it was that. By the time I was 14 or 15, I began to be really, really frightened of the fact that I so enjoyed being a girl. Mm. And so I was so ashamed. I can't tell you how ashamed I was. And I thought, if anybody gets to know this, they will hate me. Mm. And in the boarding school I lived then, my life will become unbearable. But actually, even outside the boarding school in the 60s, yeah. the hostility, the prejudice was so, so profound. Um, and the only future I could see for myself was to try to repress this. And sadly, my love of theatre got tangled up in it. And so theatre itself became a place of fear and a place of shame. And I lost my vocation almost as soon as I'd found it. And that's, well, I can't see, yeah, it's a source of regret. But I I couldn't do anything else at the time. I don't reproach myself for that. I had to do that. Yeah. Um, And theatre sort of got driven underground. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, 
the call to theatre was very, very strong. Mm. And I got to study it. I mean, studying theatre from an academic perspective became a safe way of doing it. A little bit of distance. Yeah, that, yeah. That, 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 that bit of distance. And I loved languages. My level was my levels were in French or in Spanish, mm-hmm. and I got particularly involved in Lorca, Lorca's poetry and mm-hmm. Lorca's plays, but also in the 17th century Spanish playwrights, contemporaries of Shakespeare, mm-hmm. people like uh, Lope de Vega, Calderon, mm-hmm. and I got obsessed actually, and really loved the work of Calderon, and I did a PhD on one of his plays called El Medico de Suangra. And, um, gosh, I remember, I mean, so I got absolutely immersed in 17th century Spanish theatre. I was a complete expert. It's pretty niche. <laughs> yeah, very niche. And uh, at the time, nobody else had even heard of it. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Nobody kind of knew it existed. Um, and my PhD began to seem like a waste of time. And I gave it up. And I went off and I became a bus conductor. Wow. Uh, And then I became a student nurse. Mm -hmm. Because I felt at the time that I was on a kind of, I don't know, I was on a kind of escalator. I was was allowing myself to be carried forward by the expectations of my class and my background and my education. And I wasn't wasn't really being true to myself. Mm. And I had to kind of step off that and do something really drastic, like, Conduct buses. <laughs> you must. You see all of life, though. <laughs> and and it, was, you know, it was fantastic. Yeah. I, I'm very proud of that. Um, uh, uh, and the funny thing is that um, when the when Jesus Queen of Heaven first came out, uh, the tabloids who wanted to make fun of me mm. called me uh, an ex bus conductor. That's a good end for a tabloid, isn't but it? it? But you know, and they and they still they still use it. I mean, really. Yeah, a couple of years ago, I was attacked by the Daily Mail. <laughs> and that's how they described me. It's very funny. <laughs> how long were you a bus conductor for? Uh, I don't know, not very long. Six months, a year. Right, so really not, barely long enough to justify that being your, yeah, yeah, your but history I, in the papers, but, but, right? I, but I've got my, uh, you know, I've got my badge. I've got my conductor's badge. So you were, you definitely yeah. were. I mean, I was a train ticket examiner for one wow. week. So yeah. I don't even yeah. have the uniform. I balled it up and threw it back at them when they fired me. So <laughs> I don't think that'll ever come out in the Daily Mail. Who knows? <laughs> Who, knows? <laughs> Who knows? But you do see, you do meet. All types of people yeah, in those jobs. Yeah. Well, because being a nurse was yeah. even better in terms of understanding human life. Yeah, it was amazing. But I was very unhappy being a nurse. I couldn't really handle the exposure to all the suffering. That's hard. Yeah, it was very very hard. And uh, and you're suffering inside. Yeah. So it's enough already. Yeah. 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 And uh, of course, I wanted to be a female nurse. I didn't want to be a male nurse either. Yeah, it's very 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 hard. Um, and I remember one day I was in a ward, a medical ward, horrible place. Yeah. Uh, so many of the, the patients were stuck there. They were stuck there because there weren't places for them in residential homes or there wasn't enough support for them to live in their own homes. Yeah. And they were bored out of their minds. I mean, it was awful. And they used to, they always used to ring the bell to try and go to the loo just for something to do, actually. Yeah. And um, 
Oh, it was horrible. And in the middle of all this chaos, there was a man who I thought was dying. He, was, he seemed terribly ill. I was very worried about him. And I kept trying to get him seen by a doctor. Mm. And I failed. And he died. He died that morning. Um, God, I still, I still want to cry about this because he, he died alone. There was nobody with him. I felt terrible about it. You had that sense that he was, mm, he was yeah, going. Yeah. yeah, and he was. Mm. And uh, then me and another nurse, we had, to, we had the job of um, laying out the body and washing it and yeah. just getting it ready to be taken down to the, to the mortuary. And um, I remember we couldn't find a shroud anywhere. <laughs> and in the end, we, we came out with this, I don't know, we found this grotesque garment, grotesque <laughs> thing. And um, <laughs> the other nurse said, I said, oh, Christ, I wouldn't be seen dead in it. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and somehow, I don't know, somehow that kept me going. But mm. after, after we'd done all that, I had 10 minutes, I think, before I was due to go for lunch. And it was the Victoria Hospital in Kirkcaldy. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it must have been about the sixth floor of that tower. And I was standing, looking out at the floor, feeling, feeling wretched. And I heard a voice. This is the first time I heard a voice in my head. Right. And the voice said, you will go down after that. You will work to the end of your shift. You will go down to your locker. You will take everything out. You will go home. And you will never come back to work here again. Mm. And um, I don't know. You, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do anything but do that. Yeah. And I thought, and I'd had a growing sense that in order to become a writer, I had to finish my thesis. It seemed crazy, but that's, that was the feeling I had. Mm-hmm. And I had nothing else to do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I started to go back to my thesis, and to get back into it, I decided to translate the play that was the subject of, uh, of my study, a play called El Medico de Su Honra, The Doctor of His Honor, by Calderon. And um, Susie, my partner, happened to be working at the BBC at that time. And she happened to be working with a man called Robert Livingston, mm-hmm. who happened <laughs> to have just graduated from uh, Glasgow University the, with a theatre studies degree. And he knew Calderon. And so she showed him the script. And he read it and he said to me, you can write dialogue. Wow. And I went, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. I was 29, I think, at the time. And then he also happened to have an aunt who had died and left him a thousand pounds. And what he wanted to do was put on a play in the fringe. And we decided to put on a Calderon play. We put on, we, so I translated another one, a comedy of Calderon. Casa con dos puertas, mala este guardar. House with two doors is hard to, hard to keep. Uh-huh. And we put it on in 1980, just after my first child was born. Right. And we did it in uh, St. Thomas of Aquin's school. Oh. Right. 
Yeah, wouldn't it be good to say, oh, it was a huge hit? But no, it did really badly. Well, you know, how many shows are a huge hit in the front? Not that many. This is 1980. It really didn't do well. Uh, But very few people turned up. I think our our most successful night, we had 20 or something like that. I've been in shows where that's a big celebration. You get the 20. 20, you go, wow, that's great. This is great. And the thing is that people laughed, even when there were just eight or nine. Mm Mm-hmm. They laughed at jokes that I help create. Yeah, and because ha- you're you're um, I, just forgive me for being dim here, but you're not just literally translating oh. Spanish. You, you're no. rewriting, aren't you? Well, well, you see, the thing is that you get a, you, you you see a line in the Spanish, and it's a joke. Yeah, so and you know you, that, and I know that, and so <laughs> I have got to create a joke that kind of corresponds to what the original joke is. Yeah, yeah. And if people don't laugh, then I've failed. Of course, that's your responsibility. Yeah, that's what I have to do. Yeah. And um, I also have to create lines that are, uh, obviously, that reflect the meaning of the text, yep. but which are also speakable and actable. So there's a, such a big degree of actual writing as well. Oh, yeah. So Not there's just, lots yeah. of writing. And yeah. as I w- heard actors speaking my lines, well, that was fantastic. Mm. And then to see these lines getting laughs, that was also fantastic. Because I saw every performance. That was when I knew I was a playwright. Mm. That's when I knew. Imagine that. Your first experience as a playwright when you really know it's happening is a translation of a mm. Spanish play. Mm. That must be quite an unusual set of circumstances. It's a funny way in, isn't it? It's a very funny way in. And the strange thing was that there I was, uh, and I used to I used to go turn up with my baby in the um, in mm-hmm. a, you know in a sling. I was so proud of her. I was so proud of the play. And so I said, okay, I'm going to become a playwright. Now there was a bit of a bit of a difficulty here. I was unemployed. I had no money. Mm-hmm. I was signing on. So, and I knew nothing about theatre. I knew everything about 17th century Spanish theatre. <laughs> Again, niche. <laughs> but still. But, but, very helpful, actually. It was yeah. really, really wonderful knowledge to have. But nothing about contemporary British theatre. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't afford to buy theatre tickets. Oh, man. So, a bit of a difficulty. So, somebody said, in fact, it was Joyce McMillan. I think, I hope I can reveal that. Joyce McMillan said, well because she'd started reviewing at that stage. Mm-hmm. And she said, the thing to do is to become a fringe reviewer for the Scotsman. And uh, and she told me how to do it. So you can write and you can get free tickets. Yeah. yeah. So so what I did was I went with her one night to see a show because she had two free tickets. Yeah. Uh, and I wrote a sample review, 200 words, mm-hmm. uh, for Alan Wright. Yep. And he took me on as a fringe reviewer for the Fringe of 1981. And then he kept me on as a as a reviewer, uh, and so for the next four years, I would be seeing usually at least one, sometimes two, sometimes even three shows a week. Mm-hmm. What I'd have to do was um, watch the show, obviously, and think very hard about what I liked about it. What did I think about the writing? What did I think about the acting? What did I think about the design? Mm-hmm. And then. I was up to 350 words sometimes, sometimes 300. What, try to describe what it was like to be there. Mm. And try and just just to create, and also respond to what the audience was, how, how they were feeling. Did they like it even if I didn't? You know, mm. what was going on here? And 
I usually had about an hour once the show was over. Wow. Uh, to just, I mean, yeah, I, I would have to then, I would go to the Scotsman office, the old one with the, you know, mm-hmm. North Bridge, that amazing office. Uh, I would go into the features room and I would type out my words on a typewriter, bit of paper, take it down the stairs to the subs. Wow. Uh, and a they, real bit of paper. A real bit of paper. I would take it down to them and they, they would then lay it out and then they would take it down the stairs to where it was actually put on, mm-hmm. you know, old-fashioned metal type. And then it would be printed out and you'd hear the building shaking with the with the with the presses going and then it would come out the next day and that was an incredible training for me in helping me understand my taste what I liked what I didn't like the kind of and think about the kind of plays that I wanted to create yeah um but also surely in brevity and clarity yeah. and yeah I had to learn to write fast yeah I had to learn to write uh, Briefly, I had to make sure that every word counted. Yep. That's great training. Yeah, I couldn't have asked for better training in many ways. So what kind of things were you seeing? I mean, what kind of things pop out in your memory that you saw at that time? Oh, I saw all kinds of stuff. I saw whatever was on, you know. You saw everything. Yeah, everything. Everything that was happening. And uh, sometimes I was horribly rude. (laughs) Were you? Horrible. I mean, it was awful, the things I said. And (laughs) for a few years afterwards, people would sometimes come up to me and say, you wrote a review of my play and wow. my heart would sink once. Now, this is a long time afterwards. Me and Susie, my partner, and my kids, we were on a beach on holiday in Portugal. And uh, this British family turned up. It was, a, it, was a, it was a woman. She seemed to be a lone parent with uh, two, young, uh, two young children. And, we, and Susie, who was great at getting to know people, she started to talk to her and... Um, Susie said, <laughs> yeah, my husband works in the theatre. And the woman said, oh, my, my husband um, works in the theatre too. He's a, he's a theatre reviewer. And I went, oh, and Susie went, that's very interesting. And, and then the woman said, yeah, well, she, you know, he wanted to be a playwright. Originally, he wanted to be a playwright. Mm-hmm. But he put a play on in the, in the fringe and it got this awful, <laughs> awful review. <gasps> and it completely destroyed his confidence. Oh, my word. And the uh, the review was written by somebody called John Clifford. And, you know, we remember this because we still use that word to frighten the children with <gasps> if they misbehave. Wow. And I realized that I'd, you know, I destroyed this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've never, and it, I think it was a Daily Telegraph. I've never been very much liked by the Daily Telegraph. Mm. <laughs> oh, dear. And, and I felt. Well, I sort of felt awful about it, but at the same time I thought, well, God, I've had some terrible reviews. I haven't let them destroy me. That's true. I'm sure you, I mean, more than many people. Yeah. You're oh. talking about the Daily Mail ripping you apart and yeah. the ex-bus conductor, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, how, how different is the world to you now, you know, in 2018 than it was when you first started living as a woman? Well, I think it's completely, it's completely changed. Yeah. And of course... Since the time when I was a child, it's it's utterly unrecognisable. I, I would, when I was a child, I would never have imagined, even for a moment, that I'd be able to live openly mm-hmm. um, as a woman. And I remember, God, I can't remember when it was, but I was at a, I was at a conference once about trans rights, mm-hmm. 
And there was a group from the uh, RCN, from the Royal College of Nursing, a trans group of nurses fighting for the rights of trans nurses. And I thought, my God, if they'd been around when I was doing my training, what a difference that would have made. Could uh, have changed your whole path. Yeah, could have changed. You never know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then, yeah, I mean, and, and even when I first put on the play, uh, this play, Jesus Queen of Heaven, which is almost 10 years ago. Mm. Um, I think I was the only out trans performer in the country. I don't think there was anybody else. Um, and now there's lots of us. Yeah. Um, and I was torn apart by the whole tabloid press at that time. And there was no one to defend me, but now, now there is. You know, yeah, there's that, a community. That's right. There's a whole community now that, that just didn't exist before. Mm. Um, and my legal rights as a trans person are totally respected. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and here I am. <laughs> and um, yeah, I think I'm very lucky. And, and Edinburgh is a, is a relatively forward-thinking place to hang out. Well, Would you agree yeah, I mean, I, I guess so. But certainly when I started to... Um, come out and uh, just, you know, go to the shops, go about my business, leave my front door. Every time I left my house, people would shout abuse at me. What are we talking, 20, 10, so, 20 years So ago? we must be talking about 15 years ago, mm -hmm. something like that. I don't know what would happen now, but um, in those days it was horrible. It was very, very difficult. And um, uh, it felt quite dangerous sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when you say you don't know what would happen now, you mean if if you were starting if starting still, from there? If I was starting now, sure, yeah, I don't know. And my, because I remember my my family, my daughters were really frightened for me. They were really terrified that I would get um, I would get beaten up. And mm. I can remember my my eldest daughter. She had a flat just off the grass market, and I used to go and see her. And then on my way home, she said, "Dad, <laughs> I'm going to walk you home mm. um, to keep me safe." Um, and I and I was so touched by that, but at the same time thinking, well, actually, it's supposed to be my job to keep you safe, love. But <laughs> yeah, but the tables turned, don't they? <laughs> time goes on, and <laughs> it was very and it was very touching. There's a great yeah. line in the play. Um, your daughter says to your dad, "You're going to be a grandma," and it, get, it got a big laugh last night. I presume it gets a laugh generally. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a lovely line, and it is my daughter's line. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what she <laughs> that's what she said. I mean, it was very very important when I. Realised I could no longer go on living as a man. Yeah, and I uh, was talking to my daughters about it, and I said, um, "Whatever happens, I will always love you. Yeah, uh, and I will always be your dad." And so they, uh, yeah, they always called me dad, and they always refer to me as she, mm -hmm. often in the same sentence, and um, <laughs> when we're around my grandchildren. Uh, Bex says dad and then mm -hmm. grandma um, and it's it's very lovely actually that's an it, exciting it, place to yeah. to be living I'm sure it's it very feels exciting it, to me yeah it's very touching and it's very beautiful and I think that well that's one of the things that is really hopeful about living today I mean there's a lot that's terribly dark and terribly frightening yeah but people's attitudes to gender are changing so fast and and often when you speak to young people about it they 
you know, they don't have the same angst that, that I went through. No. And they don't have the same need often to transition. They are happy to live as queer, gender-fluid yeah. people. And it's just... It's beautiful to see. It because really is lovely. The transitioning thing, perhaps, was hmm, was more appropriate. Maybe when when we still thought in this binary way. Yeah. I so mean, that's becoming less prominent. Yes, maybe. And, uh, and isn't it fantastic that the Scottish government is going to make it possible for people to register as third gender people? Yeah. yeah. And I'll be. I'll certainly be first in the queue for yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. It's a. Uh, it's very happy. It's it's made my life possible that I can live as a woman, and all my documents say I'm a woman. But yep. gosh, it would be more accurate, really, to talk of myself. I think as a third gender person. Yeah, and and was there a was there a wry smile or a, or a tongue in the cheek when your daughter said, "Dad, you're going to be a grandma," or was it just so natural to her no. that that's the way she would talk? No, that's just the way she would talk. So she she wouldn't think twice about that. Well, I mean, she she knew that it. I mean, she's she's quite mischievous about it. So she um, she knew it would raise a smile, or yeah, she knew it, she knew she knew I'd love to hear it, and she all, but she also likes. Um, <laughs> there was a time when uh, her son had just been born, mm-hmm. and. The health visitor had uh, was coming to see the son, coming to see, coming to you know do their inspection, whatever. Mm-hmm. And the baby was wearing pink socks. Right. And the health visitor, I think, just as a joke, I goodness knows, said, "Oh gosh, possibility of uh, gender confusion here." Ho ho ho! <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and um, uh, at which point I came in dressed as a woman, and. Um, Beck said, "Oh, hello, Dad." <laughs> she loved that, <laughs> and that, and, and, and she loved doing that. She loved freaking out the yeah health visitor. Um, so you get you, you're at a point now where you can actually have fun with it. Oh yeah, which I mean, is great. It, yeah, it is fun. Like it, what, it, to live in a world where we can like absolutely, yeah. absolutely enjoy it. And I mean, it's 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 a fascinating thing. I remember at the very very beginning of the process, I was walking home. Uh, late at night, um, just going down the Royal Mile, and this bloke came up to me and said, "Excuse me, madam." He was a bit pissed, uh, and I was so pleased because at that time I was just—I used to get very distressed with people calling me sir in mm-hmm. shops or whatever. And when he called me madam, I was just delighted. Yeah. And then he looked at me again and he went, "Oh, I'm so sorry." Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh God. You should kick me up the arse. I mean he was just he was just absolutely mortified. Oh. And I thought, why is this about? Why is he so upset? Why does he think he's insulted me? Mm. And then I understood that the probably the biggest insult that a man can give another man is to call him a woman. Mm. To call him a sissy, to call you know, to all, all, all those horrible words, and it taught me. And I thought, yeah, it taught me so much about my own attitude towards myself because I hated and despised myself for so many years. Yeah. Um, or, or, or sometimes, sometimes, um, men of a certain age, um, they'll see me um, kind of hesitating when I'm about to cross the road and they'll help me across the road or mm-hmm. they'll pick up my bag or they'll they'll help me in some way or another or they'll hold doors open for me and then if they say a few words it's always as if 
It's almost as if I was somebody stupid. <laughs> and I and I can remember thinking, what? What is going on? Do I look stupid? Mm. Why are they treating me this way? Why are they being so condescending? And then I thought, no, it's not because you look stupid. It's because you look like a woman. Mm. So you're learning about so then you learn, where women are. Inside. So then you learn so much about just about how gender politics work in the society and how oppressive and misogynist yeah. and um, really appalling they are in so many different ways. So, I mean, in one sense, it, you know, the openness is available for you to live as you do, and yet living as a woman comes with its own set of challenges. Of course it comes with its own. Yeah. You know, yeah. And then, so much to deal with. And then I can remember, <laughs> I can remember looking in the mirror. I mean, when I was a child, it used to torment me to look in the mirror because I didn't, I'd see a boy. And I didn't really recognize this boy. I didn't think it was this boy was really me. Very profound, very frightening, terrifying feeling. And and then came a time when I started to live as a woman and I would look in the mirror and I would recognize myself. Mm. I would see a woman and I would think, yes, it's me. And I would feel so happy. Mm. And then as the years passed and the incredible weight of judgment that gets that um gets put on women to look good to conform to gender stereotypes to conform to expectations of what a woman looks like began to weigh on me and i started to dislike myself again uh particularly because i get as i get older i start to put on weight because that's what you do mm. you know i'm in my late 60s now that's what that's what happens and, <laughs> and I, sometimes i see pictures of myself and i go oh god you look so fat and it's extraordinary i mean because i feel ashamed mm. and i feel ashamed of these signs of aging far more than i you know, feel ashamed of being trans. That's 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 not the problem. The problem is looking old, mm. and the problem is looking old as a woman. But then, maybe there's a positive in that, and now you get to feel that stuff. Well, it, you know, at least obviously, as a as a writer, it's it's amazing to understand things. It helps me understand. Yeah. Um, and then it's just another journey, isn't it, to towards learning to like and. Respect yourself. Being human, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's just what being a human is about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, finally, I just want to ask you, the the show Jesus Queen of Heaven is, um, obviously it's about being a trans person, but it's, of course, massively about the place of religion and what religion is saying in our society and what it's said and, yeah, you know, the indoctrination and stuff. How did how did that part of it come about? Did you have religion in your upbringing or, or not? Well, I was brought up... Uh, in a series of schools that called themselves Christian. Yeah. And they insisted that we went to church every day, twice a day. Twice a day. There was a service in the morning and a service in the evening. Um, and they called themselves Christian. But, I mean, the hypocrisy of this was just breathtaking because mm. the, way they, the way they treated us, just was, there was nothing Christian about it at all. Mm. And so I very much, I very strongly turned against religion, all kinds, for, for many, many years. But in the, um, this must have been about the year 2000, something like that, I, I was, I'd been trying to write about being trans and um, 
I got nowhere. Everything had been turned down. And mm. at that stage in my career, there wasn't a single theatre in Scotland or even in the whole of Britain that would actually take an original play from me. I was kind of it was some sort of an invisible blacklist operating. Um, but I wanted to write. And I, and I got by through writing for radio and through adapting novels and just writing to commission the whole time. But I wanted to write something for myself. Uh, and I wanted it to be about being trans. So I, and I was so aware of hatred. In those days, it was hatred that I directed towards myself. Mm-hmm. And I thought, where did it, where did this come from? Maybe it came from my religious background. Maybe it came from the Bible. And I wrote a play about the Old Testament called God's New Frock, which I uh, performed in the Tron and the Travis. I think it must have been about 2002, 2003, around about then. Um, and that play <laughs> did really well in Italy, much to my astonishment. Right. They loved it in Italy. And that gave me the idea of writing a sequel about the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And that meant... To write that play, I had to read the New Testament again. And that was a revelation. I was amazed. Mm. Amazed at the, I don't know, at the wisdom, at the compassion, at the humanity, at the, at the beauty of so much of what Jesus actually says in the Gospels. And again, how this has nothing to do with the way... Christian churches actually behave. Seems to be so far removed. Yeah. Often, as it, that's what you point out so well on the show. Yeah. And, um, uh, and at the same time, I thought, well, what? Gosh. What would happen if Jesus did come back to earth as a trans woman? Mm-hmm. What would happen? What, 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 what would she say? Um, and it was all mixed up in something else that I'd been taught as a boy was that if you're in trouble or you're in difficulty, you ask yourself, what would Jesus do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, what would Jesus do? What would what would he, what would she say yeah. under these circumstances? And that was the origin of the play. Um, but, in a, you know, in a, it's very ironic <laughs> in the sense that I wrote it as a tribute to Jesus. Yeah. I'm, I was kind of slightly hesitate to say that because, because I imagine people are then going to think it's very dull. But that's, that's, that's what I wrote it as. And so I, I was astonished when I first did it and there were protesters in the street outside mm. the Tron Theatre because they said it was insulting to Jesus. And, it, it, and it's extraordinary now to learn that there are, there really are 24,000 people in America who have just signed a petition. Um, having not seen it. Having not seen it yeah. and not read it and knowing nothing about it. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, <laughs> asking for the play to be banned. Wow. I mean, to me, it seems to be pro-Jesus. Yeah, yeah. That's and what, I think, it's to me, it's spiritual. Yeah, that's what everybody says. And I think it's experience. spiritual, and that's what, yeah. um, that's what I'd like it to be, because we, you know, there is a spiritual dimension to our lives, and if we don't understand it, or if we don't acknowledge it, then we tend to get very unhappy. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I had a, a little spiritual experience last night at, your, at the prayer towards the end. Mm. Closed my eyes, held hands with people, my neighbours, and I had... I felt uh, I just had a big smile on my face. Yeah, and I thought I, I, I'm sad that anybody could have anything, but you know, to say against this that it's that it's wrong or it's, it should be banned. I mean, this seems crazy, but it's the old story, isn't it? People haven't seen it, they've heard and they've talked. Yep, and um, they think they have a right to judge it. Yeah, but there you go. I'm glad you enjoyed it anyway. 
and you're still going with it 10 years on so that's right something's yeah. working something's working and it's um i mean it's huge in brazil yeah this play huge that's great yeah. well all the best for the rest of the run thank you so much The wonderful, the inspiring Joe Clifford there. And um, so good to talk to her. And I must say I went into that interview with, with some trepidation, not about what Joe would do or say, but about what I would say. Um, I've never had a, a trans person as a guest on the show, and it's long overdue. And I have so many, so many things that I want to know, and I'm, I'm curious, and I want to learn more, and I want to uh, be as aware as I possibly can of these issues. So, of course, there comes with that curiosity, the fear that I'm going to put my foot in it, say the wrong thing, ask the wrong thing. You know, so it was great. We had a wee chat before we recorded and put some of that, um, put me at my ease, that that put me at my ease, you know, um, about that stuff. And then we were able to openly just talk uh, when we were recording and, and, yeah, just what I'm enjoying about the show now is that it's it's meandering from, from art into life and, and I'm not sure where the line is and that's great, you know. It started with the talk about mental health and now it's just from that from that point on, um it's just allowed the podcast has been allowed to be about whatever it's about, you know. It starts from a place of, of artists and then we just talk about whatever we talk about. And uh, I'm I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir here. You know what the podcast is about and you've been listening. Um but I'm expressing a wee bit of gratitude, you know, because I feel that the opening up of the conversation has been the most exciting development of it for me. Um, and long may that continue, you know. The the more people I can sit down with and have just an open, frank conversation about, about art and about life and about what it is to be human, you know, that's what I'm all about. And I'm so glad that you can be with me on that journey. So, more coming to you next week, same time, same place. And remember to go to Twitter, follow me, pitccpod. Give me an email, brian at puttingittogethercast.com and most importantly, patreon.com forward slash puttingittogether where you can throw me a bit of support. So, thank you very much for listening and until next week, I'll just say cheerio now.